We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. If you enjoy the Filmmakers Podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Hello and welcome to episode 285 of the Filmmakers Podcast. (laughs) This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything everything in in between. between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up in our very, very humble opinions. opinions. Welcome to the show. I am Giles Alderson. Hello, I'm Matthew Butlerhart. And I'm Tori Hart. Oh, actually, oh. I left out the button. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. A little divorce there since last time. Divorce on the cards. <laughs> they're in a room somewhere and they're not going to last there very long. It's very hot. Just leave out your name. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very hot. It's very hot. This week's episode is with the fantastic director Dan Mervish, whose film, 18 and a Half, is coming out in the UK now it's come out in America and it's been amazing yeah it's, it's, it's brilliant it's had, it's had like and the, the, the theatrical releases kept getting bigger and bigger and each week there are more people asking for it which is great it's yeah. great that's amazing for an indie film especially in America it's you know such a big nut to crack so well done Dan yeah he works so, so hard at it so hard at getting it out there yeah like, yes he, like his, his the whole he, he travels around and like he gets like sort of fake protesters because it's all about Nixon and stuff to kind of like hold up mm-hmm. banners and, and stuff which is what, when we saw him in, in, uh, in Manchester Manchester Film Festival we have the same thing you brought people over just to hold up banners and things but it's such an important part of it isn't it like promoting your own film as indie filmmakers you have to put the work in oh god yeah and he works and he works bum off yeah so hard so hard so hard should we uh, list some of his other credits that he has done over his time I mean he's been working in this industry for a long time he was a a writer on The Peacekeeper Um, he was director and writer on Stamp and Deliver in 1998 he wrote Threat and Exposure he starred as Sketchy Guy (laughs) in Open House uh, which was also a camera operator director and producer of uh, which is fantastic he was the rabbi in My Big Fat Independent movie half empty cinematographer producer and writer between us he was a director and writer and he did a song i think on it as well did a little bit of music for it mm. he did as matt alluded to a second ago his one of his latest features bernard and huey he was the director additional editor and producer and obviously his latest film 18 and a half uh, he was one of the radio announcers on it he directed it he edited it uh, he produced it he wrote it and he was one of the songwriters on it. Oh, he's one of the songwriters as well. Yes, of course. He's a very yeah. talented man. Very talented very, man. Very busy man. Very busy man. I think he did a lot of the cooking as well. Yeah, absolutely. Probably did. This is the kind of guy who is perfect for this podcast because he does everything. He gets out there and does it. What do you think we, our listeners will take away from this week's episode, from what we chatted about? I think I think he's such uh, sort of an ingenious uh, filmmaker as in how he puts things together. Like he's consistently over years and years and years found different ways, like constantly sort of shifting to put things together. Um, you know, 
know, he's, he's a true sort of indie filmmaker as well. Like that's that's his aim. So so listening to sort of you know uh, you know how he how he finances things and yeah. it's always like how important things like crowdfunding is that sort of stuff. Obviously, he filmed this as the COVID was kicking off as well. So how he dealt with that in a really sort of indie way as well, and yeah. sort of you know never letting anything sort of stop him. It was like okay, so that I can't do this. I'm going to go with Karen working on a, on a different side of, of the film. You know, but just constantly sort of hustling and grifting and stuff, which is really nice. Like, you know, he's he's a proper dedicated indie filmmaker. That's the world he, he wants to. He Did wants you say to grifting? Do I mean grifting? I think I meant grifting. Grifting. Mm, yeah. Hustle. It's like a grifter. Hustler. Like a grif- a yeah, grifter. Yeah, grifter. Grafter. 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 Perhaps is maybe what he Grifter. meant. I, I think I mean, a little bit of both. To be fair. He chats about how um, how eighteen and a half came about, and you know, and sort of just financing it, which is. I think, you know, I think the listeners will really find in- interesting and, you know, just he's so resourceful and thinking and thinking outside of the yeah. box, which is, you know, always one of the major, major pluses um, in your kind of film, uh, indie filmmaking toolbox is thinking outside of that box. Absolutely, <laughs> as far out as you can get. <laughs> he talks about his writing process uh, and working with a writing partner and he also talks about the importance of good food on set. Yeah, so important, and, so important. And it sounded amazing as well. And some pretty amazing stories about casting as well because he's had some big names in some of those films. So all that for you is coming up. Uh, Matt and Tori heart or butler heart depends on what the divorce is happening whereabouts are you in the world because you've got tons of books behind you and I know in your house you obviously do have books too there's even more in this one yeah Yeah. we're in what we what we call the shire we are in the shire and it really is because it's such a small like a hobbity house in a nice way (laughs) I've heard no but I've banged my head on small doors about three times just today so we're here yeah that's what what we're doing how many small doors are there is it is it literally small doors everywhere there's a lot you don't notice you're five foot four yeah that's true the normal oh, that's it's true. a normal sized yeah. house with normal sized doors it's i don't know what he's talking hobbits. about and it's full of stuff <laughs> it actually look, doesn't look a bit like a hobbit like with the amount of stuff in a nice way there is a lot of stuff stuff, stuff everywhere yes and what are you doing there hobbity wise what what's happening we, we're dog sitting for a bit yeah but we just we just we're yeah. writing and you know stuff going oh yeah on. good so, yeah. we are good we're, we're working on a couple of scripts because we, we, yeah, um, we went, we went and, and uh, made a sort of a short uh, sort of proof of concept horror film in Greece a few weeks ago. And that's all being put together at the moment. So um, we're so sort we're of working on the, the feature. feature side of it, yeah. Um, Very uh, nice. Yeah, but and also just getting out of London and you know doing that writing in the countryside because it's really hot. It's really hot. It's really hot in this room as well. I'm in my nephew's room. Uh, I'm up in Huddersfield and it's it's roasting. Who'd have thought? Yeah, I'm here seeing my family, so I'm still working while I'm up here. But I'm uh, yeah. Giles, didn't your new film come out the other day? <laughs> oh my God, Tori, thank you so much for asking. I'd totally forgotten. <laughs> that was completely spontaneous as well. And- it wasn't it, wasn't it? Totally spontaneous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go on. <laughs> Did you have a film that came out the other day? On Showtime, wasn't it, in America? Yeah, it was on Showtime. This is very exciting. Can you tell us a bit more about this, please? Yes, I can. It's a thriller uh, based on a best-selling novel by Samantha Lee Howe. And it came out on Showtime. It stars Samantha Bond, Emily Barrington, Ben Lloyd Hughes, Bar Edwards, and Yosho. The list goes on. And can you tell us what it's called, please? Oh, yeah. Um, it is called... 
The Stranger in Our Bed. Our audience have probably not heard of this. I've obviously never mentioned it in oh, the yeah, show at all. No, no. Yeah, it's out. It's out on Showtime. It'll be out in the UK on the 5th of September. Amazing. Amazing. And do you know what? I'm over the moon, though, by the response it's had. You never know when you put a film out of what you get, but people have been amazing on socials just posting how much they really enjoyed the film and that's really really cool the trailer looks fantastic it looks brilliant thank you seriously seriously impressive and thank you uh, Matt and Tori for bringing it up Um, obviously if you are in the US do watch and support and let me know what you think it's on Showtime now so if you've got Showtime you can watch it now amazing yay so thanks guys yes some shout outs this week pretty much it's one really there's a few but at the moment it's just one it is Q Script it is the new service for screenwriters that is starting we're collaborating with them they're also sponsoring the podcast do check it out qscripts.com what do qscripts do John? well good thank you for asking that Uh, they offer script analysis uh, services providing detailed constructive and professional reports on shorts features and TV scripts fantastic sounds great yeah Yeah, absolutely it's three months membership is free uh, only for a limited time Uh, what yeah I know so join now and you'll get all the benefits there's going to be monthly webinars Q&A sessions with industry professionals I'm sure Matt and Tori might get asked uh, Maybe separately again if, you know, <laughs> married. We'll see how it all goes. Exactly. We'll see how it goes in the Shire. In the Shire. Um, but there's going to be a free entry into the monthly prize draw with a chance to win a free detailed script report. So it's worth signing up just for that. So screenwriters, filmmakers, sign up now. Um, link to that is in the show notes, qscripts.com. Nice. I should have done it as Ian McKellen. <gasps> Would you like to do it as Ian McKellen? <laughs> Qscripts.com. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I, I, I normally I once actually because I was looking after Ian's house, I phoned up uh, Sky because it all went wrong, and I had to pretend to be Ian McKellen on the phone. Hello, uh, uh, to the same as Sky wasn't working. My Are Sky you has gone down. Was Ian McKellen said, so, and he was like, "Okay, and um, what's the title?" <laughs> well, sir. <laughs> And they believed it. That was great. And I got my Skype because I basically bought the film on Skype. This is a while ago. That is amazing. Don't tell Ian. Well, he'll be listening. He'll know. He, he does listen. Yeah. He's an avid listener. Yeah, to be fair, that I love that. You could have done all sorts, couldn't you? What else could you get? And pretending to be Serena McKellen. I mean, you could get maybe bigger doors because he was taller. Bigger doors. <laughs> I need bigger doors. Well, listen, we we could talk all day and have fun and chats, but I think we're all sweating like absolute yeah. Yeah. legends, right? now so (laughs) sit back relax right and enjoy this fantastic episode with the rather lovely dan merch enjoy enjoy how are you dan you all right yeah doing great yeah thanks guys thanks for having me here well listen honestly thank you so much for joining us uh we love talking to filmmakers Matt and Tori introduced me to your film 18 and a half because they'd seen it at the Manchester Film Festival yes, is that right? Exactly, we did yeah. on the big yeah. screen as it should be seen mm-hmm. and I loved it I thought it was fantastic I wish Thank I had you. seen it on a big screen oh, I thought yeah. the performances were out of this world I really thought it was just just delightful and such a fun subversive subversive I can't say that <laughs> word I'm <laughs> such a practice it's ridiculous and yeah so I suppose we obviously we want to talk about your career and everything that you've 
done, which is an incredible career. But maybe we start at 18 and a half. You know, let's start sure. there about how it came about. Why this film? Why did you want to make it? Well, it, it kind of came about because the last film I made, uh, which was also at the Manchester Film Festival called Bernard and Huey, the last mm -hmm. day of shooting that film was we were in New York. We were just in New York for a couple of days, but that was the last day. And it coincided with the November 2016 presidential election in the States where Donald Trump got elected president. Who, who'd have thunk yeah. it? And, um, so, and the very next day, I had to go or wanted to go uh, show dailies from the film to our writer, um, Jules Pfeiffer, who actually then wound up winning the uh, uh, best screenplay honors at the Manchester Film Festival. But he's a famous cartoonist and screenwriter, Oscar Pulitzer winner, and um, and he and he's kind of best. He won the Pulitzer Prize for political cartooning in the early 70s for his cartoons about Nixon and Watergate. So inevitably, the conversation came to comparisons between Nixon and Trump. Trump and, yeah. you know, oh, we sur we survived, you know, we survived Watergate. What could possibly go wrong in the next four years? <laughs> and, uh, you know, how many impeachments could we really have? So anyway, so we had a really great conversation about that. And then that night I stayed with um, because he lives out in um, Shelter Island, which is about a three hour drive from New York at the tip of Long Island. And then you go from there, you take a ferry uh, over to um, to Greenport across the, the bay. And there's my friend, uh, Terry Keefe, owns this place called the Silver Sands Motel, which he had inherited from his grandparents. It was built in the 50s and 60s. Terry comes from an indie film background, so he was smart about preserving the kind of vintage, cool vintage look to it. And um, and he they shoot a ton of fashion shoots there and some music videos and episodics, but no one had ever shot a feature. And he said, you know, uh, if you, Dan, if you come up with an idea, we're closed in the winter. Everyone, cast and crew can stay out here. Amazing. Um, you know, and he was with me talking to Pfeiffer, so we both kind of had Watergate on the mind a little bit. And it was mm -hmm. like, okay, well... Watergate and and Watergate is something I'd written about in in the past, and I was a political science, uh, you know, poli sci and history major, and I'd worked in Washington for a couple of years as a Senate speechwriter. So it's something, and I knew a couple people kind of tangentially involved with Watergate. So it was always something that fascinated me, and was trying to sort of figure out, you know, what to do with it. So then it was about coming up with a story that would make sense in this seaside motel but still be a Watergate story which all takes place in Washington so mm -hmm. so then uh, what really kind of cracked the story was that I in doing research I found out that there were you know multiple offices in the White House in the Nixon White House that had these voice activated um, taping systems uh, so it was you know his main oval office but there were other offices too and there really are tapes of Nixon listening to and playing fumbling with the buttons on these tape players and so then I realized oh plausibly there could then be a recording somewhere of Nixon or someone else deleting the 18 and a half minute gap. So right. this is for those, you know, not well versed in Watergate, this was kind of a pivotal moment in the two and a half year Watergate scandal was when it came out that there were these tapes, but there was an 18 and a half minute gap that had been deleted by someone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and Nixon tried to blame his secretary and she did this really awkward demonstration which nobody believed that she could have like accidentally erased it. It was clearly intentionally uh, deleted. And that was really the turning point in, in the scandal where it went from just kind of a long simmering scandal 
candle to, okay, this guy's going to get impeached if he doesn't resign. So anyway, so as a story then, and I started working with, uh, with a writing friend, uh, Daniel Moya, who then later became producing partner. Um, now, coincidentally, Daniel's aunt and uncle owned this diner that was just down the street from Terry's motel and, and they knew each other. And it was like, well, great. Now we've, and it's a vintage looking diner. So we're like, well, now we've got two locations. We've got to make a movie, you know, um, that's, that's, that's the rules of indie film, isn't it? Um, so then we, so then we came up with a storyline about a, a young woman in the White House uh, who's a transcriber and she gets a hold of this tape of the tape of the 18 Happen a Gap and she wants to leak it to a reporter and they decide to meet at a seaside motel and uh, and listen to the tape and then they unfortunately run into an odd collection of people including hippies, swingers, and nefarious people out to get them. And so that's what the movie is about. And then we just had to write it and make it and shoot it in the middle of a global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> how do you find writing because obviously you, you love writing you've written other books as well but how do you find that like you say you came up with the idea or the idea came to you and suddenly locations come to you and you're exactly right if filmmakers have locations shoot in them um especially yeah. if they're good ones how, <laughs> how do you find the writing process then of that because especially with 18 and a half you've got to research that quite a lot this can't be yeah, yeah even yeah. though it's a kind of fable made up a little bit that you've still got to have facts and information in there and and get the right wording well on this one it was you know it was great because i had a, a writing partner i mean daniel gets the screenplay credit and we, we we split the story credit so which basically meant that i was busy traipsing around the globe going to film festivals with the last film while he was stuck at home writing a script um perfect sounds great yeah no it worked, worked out <laughs> fine but you know there was a lot of exchanging and he is more or less based in new york so there was a lot of you know sending drafts back and forth and back and forth and i while i knew a fair bit about watergate he didn't he's you know he was like 25 when we were working on this i think he's aged a lot he's about 45 now but <laughs> <laughs> That's filmmaking for you. Yeah, it'll do it. Um, so, you know, so it was an interesting balance because he really didn't, he had to do original research, um, but also he could kind of, you know, check me when I said, oh, everyone's going to know who this person is. And he's like, no, 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 nobody's going to know who this person is. And likewise, mm -hmm. he would kind of over explain something. And I would go, no, 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 That's then there's going to be a whole group of the audience that you know, that's too much exposition for them. So it was a really nice balance. And, and I think now the film, you know, it pays off because people who know Watergate get it, but people who don't know Watergate can, it's accessible for them too. So really in this case, you know, my approach to this being historical fiction was, you know, if you, if you, by comparison, you look at what Tarantino does, you know, with his films, and I'm sure there's some academic description of what this is, but where by the end of his films, whether it's uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or the, or the, the, the World War II one, history is completely rewritten. Hitler gets killed or Manson does something else. Or, and there's a perfectly great way of doing it. But there's another way of doing historical fiction, which is that you create this kind of fictional loop in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. You know, you, yeah. in, in the, you've got this historical timeline, you create this fictional loop with fictional characters dealing with the real characters. But by the end of the story, you're, the timeline hasn't changed. We yeah. are back in our own history. So it's kind of more speculative 
historical fiction. And, and yeah. you, you should, it sort of it plays out pretty much in real time almost as well. So it's sort of mm-hmm. that's what I, that's yeah. what I love about like this, the excitement of it. there's all this stuff going on around it, and they all talk about Watergate, and and there's this little little tiny mm. little world that you've created <laughs> in the middle of all this and because it plays out in real time. Yeah. It just sort of feels I don't know. So there's like a real urgency about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Lovely, yeah. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, and I think that's kind of the fun of doing you know to to give an indie film resonance because as an indie film you know you're going to have you know a handful of people in a secluded location that's kind of mm-hmm. you know you're not going to have thousands of of extras mm-hmm. or anything like mm-hmm. that so but what can you do to kind of place it into a bigger world yeah, exactly you know of of real you know import and and you know the fate of the world is at stake and so that's kind of the the interesting trick there yeah so for me it a lot of it uh, of kind of getting back to the screenplay question is kind of working backwards and like okay this is we know the beginning and we know the end at the end if we're resetting history you know this has to sure you know, things have to happen without spoiling the, <laughs> the end of the film and so then it's about sort of constructing the characters and the plot that that would make that all you know work and and then and then you know running drafts by a few friends and just going back and forth between us as writers but it took a while it's a you know it took a year and a half or two years to get the script yeah to a place where you were happy was there a point when and i suppose we all go through this where you thought is this working do we go yep. in a different direction <laughs> yeah talk us through how you felt then because it's always really difficult isn't it when you've, you've worked hard on something and it's just you get feedback and you go oh my god we've got to dive in and rip it all apart again it's really difficult well i, th- I think the interesting thing that we did and and is that you know i i sort of laid out kind of the the general story beats and then handed it off to daniel while i went off traipsing around the globe and he came back with like a whole 30 page first act you know backstory kind of thing and i was as opposed to just jumping right into the the you know our locations and i was like well this is great but it's not the movie we're making but it's not wasted effort either because by going through that exercise you've now established a lot of things about the character that um that you can then refer to later and make assumptions about and explain things later but we're but in terms of the final version of the movie we're jumping right in to you know page 31 you know essentially Mm -hmm. so it's uh so it was it was a good you know, it was a good exercise. I'm glad we did it that way um, because it then gave us that basis to, you know, for the character and 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 a lot, you know, and the other characters. And but I was like, okay, well, that was great. But now let's actually write the script. <laughs> so. With regards to timing, so you you had the script, and then it, like, did you get to start filming before the um, pandemic hit, or was it sort of like coincided and you, and you went, actually, this is kind of going to work well. We can use <laughs> use that to our advantage. I mean, if anyone did. No, we we um, now we started shooting March third, twenty twenty. Right. And um, you know what could possibly mm. go wrong in March of twenty twenty? <laughs> so. Um, and you know, we were already starting to hear about, you know, China and Italy and things like that, but we thought, okay, well, we'll, by the time it hits the States, we'll, you know, we will have just wrapped. Well, as it turned out, things really accelerated fast in March of 2020. And so we got 11, well, we got to day 10 and the director's guild, the DGA, they see, I have their mug here. Um, they, um, (laughs) mug. yeah, no, they, they make good mugs. Um, they came out to visit the set from. New York and we were you know super isolated three hours from New York 20 minute walk from the closest town so we were as close to being in a quarantine bubble as 
one could have wanted. And they were like, oh, you guys are doing great out here. You're going to finish your film. And, you know, because and by the way, every other film in North America has shut down. So you're the last one shooting. Wow. That's crazy. Like, Wait, what? Yeah. I know. Yeah. We're like, what does everyone else know that we don't know? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, because we've been hearing kind of sporadic reports. Oh, South by Southwest shut down. Oh, Broadway mm. shut down. Oh, mm. you know, zombies are eating people. You know, like you didn't mm. know what was, what to believe any, you know, and what was real. So we were all completely paranoid. But you guys carry on. You guys keep filming. There's nothing I going know, on yeah. over here. I was like, this, that, can't, that can't be good. So the next day, after day 11, we shut down. So, um, and we had four days left to go. So we had, you know, maybe 75 to 80% of the movie in the can. You know, so I grabbed a hard drive, my computer, and, and hightailed it back to LA. <laughs> uh, but most of the cast and crew were New York based. And, and actually a third of our crew, and it was a small crew, and, you know, it was like 22 people or something, but about seven or eight of them decided to just stay at the Silver Sands Motel. Oh, um, wow. Terry said, you know, no one else is staying here, so why don't you guys stay here? And they didn't want, you know, and these were like the single Brooklyn people. They didn't have families or kids to go back to. So they they all just, and they were afraid to go back to New York City. So they're like, well, we're just staying here. So they stayed for over two months. Oh my gosh. And actually my, my cinematographer is one of them. She stayed for six months. She just never left. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's a beautiful place to be fair. It, I mean, well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we couldn't return the camera because all the camera places had shut down. So they're like, well, we got a camera. We're like, so they wind up shooting shorts. They shot some what? extra footage for oh, us. Amazing. They shot I music video it. while they were oh, there. I mean, so it became cool. like a film camp for them. Yeah. They had a great How time. Beautiful. Yeah. And we had like $3,000 worth of Omaha Steaks meat that was, we had done product placement with Omaha Steaks. So they had food to eat too. They didn't have to resort to cannibalism. So I don't think, I know, I think meat. we started with nine, but there were eight by the time we made it back. So, um, <laughs> so then meanwhile, I was back in LA editing the film and working with my composer who's one of my neighbors. And so, cause musicians were just sitting at home with nothing to do. So I was like, well, let's start working mm. on the music, you know? Having that time to sit back, even though you probably thought, are we ever going to get to film again? <laughs> the months went on, but having that time for you to sit with those, uh, was it 10 days you had already shot to sort of go, Oh, I can put this together. Was that kind of really nice because if you'd finished yeah. it you'd be like oh gosh now I've got I haven't got chance to pick stuff up whereas exactly. you knew you were yeah. going back to do four more days so you could do the other bits of pickups talk us through that yeah that was um, no I mean that's exactly right and and if you think about it that's what Hollywood big ho budget Hollywood films do all the time they shoot the film and then they go back and do reshoots. And it makes sense. Indie film, it's really hard to do that because you've got your set budget and you go, we've got whatever amount of days, 10, 15, 20, to shoot this thing. You never think about going, oh, hang on, let's have two days, at least two, and put it into our budget. We really should because it would make such a difference to us. Try, trying to go back to actors and crew afterwards is so much harder. Exactly. And it, you know, it's the interesting thing is we never had to reshoot anything, uh, which oh, is great. great. You know, yeah. I mean, we could have if we needed to, but we never really did. Um, but it was really helpful in kind of tweaking the script on those other f scenes for those other four days. Mm -hmm. um, that was great. Like, oh, we do need this scene. We don't need this scene. We, add, you know, we just wrote an extra song. So let's do a thing where the hippie sings a song. Cool. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was. Um, you know, or we need to, you know, there were a couple little wild lines that we did need to re-record, and so great, we're literally on on location. Let's just go in the same cabin, and have the actor say the same line again. Um, so it was thing, little things like that, but but having that ability to look at the exactly to because I edited all that eighty 
90% of the movie during mm-hmm. that six months. So we could look at it. And it was also good just for the actors and the crew to say, hey, by the way, we shot something really good. <laughs> you know, Yeah, the confidence levels go up. We should mm-hmm. really all go back and do that. And sure enough, everyone was able to, you know, and this is September 2020. It We were one of the first films that came back under the new SAG and DGA protocols, um, you, you know, the COVID safe protocols. And, and so we were kind of the guinea pig for, you know, working, finding PCR testing that could be done overnight and things like that. It was very, you know, that part was stressful, but it was for most of the cast and crew, it was their first time back on set in six months. And so it was great to all be back together. You know, I was the only one that uh, there, there had been a couple other LA people in the first part of the shoot. And the problem was in September, 2020, New York had a rule that if you were from California to quarantine for, for two weeks. So I was the only one that came back from, from the LA crew. Uh, and it was great because I could live in one of those cabins for two weeks. And I, and I, and by this point I had a pretty good sourdough starter. Um, <laughs> so I smuggled it with me back into New York and I started baking sourdough for the cast oh, and crew every oh, day. Oh, the smell of that every morning must've been amazing. Do you think food, I, I, we hardly ever talk about this, but food on set is really important. Um, oh, for geez. morale, having decent yeah. food. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah. I agree. But it's something we never discussed on this podcast ever. It's really, <laughs> we just said have good catering, but actually it's really important to, to make sure everyone's happy and the, the catering is good. Yeah. And then, you know, things, and it's not just the, the, the catering of the meals, but it's also things like I had my, you know, she was then 12 year old daughter send Girl Scout cookies oh, to amazing. the set. And, oh, and my mom nice. baked cookies and sent mail those from Omaha. So, you know, and then, you know, baking these cinnamon buns and, you know, things like that it, it, it makes a huge difference for morale and then having these omaha steaks available like to have these massive barbecues you know i mean even the vegetarians i think ate it yeah so after six um, months of being up there yeah. really <laughs> oh yeah. yeah no they were starving um so yeah it was yeah and then you know and then we had a wine product placement sponsor that was a local winery out there perfect there you go All the actors had mm-hmm. wine and they were like all right, this is really nice. You know, but a lot of that landed because we didn't have any time for rehearsals, um, you know, in the first part of the shoot or even the second part of the shoot. Um, but by living all together, mm. you know, in this great little motel and drinking wine after, you know, we wrapped, yeah. like it really lent this great um, chemistry to mm. all the actors. You know, they really, you know, could could gel together as a, as a team. Yeah, chemistry is fantastic with all these Absolutely. actors. Absolutely. Well, I, I sort of assumed that you'd rehearse because, because um, <laughs> I, in, in the nicest possible way, because like there's all these really, there's so much dialogue, there's such lots of long scenes. And and what the way you've oh, I mean I I read into it but it, it feels like a seventies film as well and the best possible because I love seventies films but you have those long lingering shots with I love that scene when they're they're just in the alleyway and they're just chatting and oh, they're slowly pushing in it sort of makes me sort of think about things like the conversation and things like that and, yeah yeah and for I suppose I'm just used to kind of these days you know with actors you know with scenes everything is chopped up so much but to have these mm-hmm. scenes that play out mm. almost in real time it's just sort of it's, it's really refreshing to watch I love that stuff so I, I, oh, had, I just assumed yeah. you'd 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 spent time with the cast and rehearse and things but I mean it's amazing cast, yeah more like, like a play kind yes of yeah. yeah exactly well that was kind of how they looked at it and and they were all New York based so all of them had done theater Broadway yeah, right. not Broadway so they were all you know really accustomed to memorizing long scenes, you mm-hmm. know, which is the first step, you know, to doing those kinds of scenes is, uh, is can they just, you know, and some actors can memorize well and others not so well or 
you know, whatever. So, um, but yeah, especially Willa Fitzgerald and John Magaro, our two leads were just great together. And they, yeah, they didn't, we didn't have any like formal rehearsal time, but you know, I think they worked on scenes, you know, together at night, you know, and, and they, and they also shared a ride and my partner, Daniel was also the driver. So he would drive them from New York for three hours so they wow. could talk about the, the scenes and the, and the characters and things like that. So that was really useful, but they were just both you know, amazing. I mean, that whole diner scene, which is kind of the first big scene in the movie, mm -hmm. we shot that on our first day of production. Like, you know, the rule is always shoot something easy. <laughs> we didn't, you know, it was, we shot a, <laughs> we shot a 15 page scene, you know, on our first day, which is not easy to do, but they just pulled it off amazingly. Did you know them beforehand, your cast? Did you know that they were connected to have any relationships before in terms of worked on anything before plays or anything? Because as Matt said, it felt like you'd had load of time to rehearse <laughs> like a play and yeah. maybe you didn't at all. And they just, you just got lucky. I don't know. Is it just good casting? Yeah. Well, I'd like to think it's good casting but it's a lot of luck too that we found these two great actors and mm. they didn't know each other before we had w one day in new york like two days before the shoot where we did like a um a, a costume session with our costumer where we all kind of met really for the first time and that was good you know just to kind of and and they realized that they knew a lot of the same people in the new york theater acting scene so they they had a lot of kind of similar reference points um mm. but yeah i mean willa i had she was the very first actor i had met with uh like you know six months earlier or something i was in new york and and an agent who had helped me on my last film um a, cat, a, a talent agent he's like oh you got to meet this great actress i've got and there's no commitment you don't have to make her an offer and daniel and i met with her and she was great and and we kind yeah. of like kept thinking about her for months while we talk to other actors and then kind of in the last week or so we 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 you know came back to her and she was still available you know because it was a strange time because it was pilot season no someone uh -huh. there was one actress who was getting married she couldn't do it um the the beginnings of the pandemic was starting to make mm -hmm. people nervous about coming from la to new york and so actually the woman who, who was going to play lena she dropped out like a week before so that was an even bigger crunch so we had so we shot for a week with Willa and John and and we still hadn't cast our Lena and Samuel the older couple in the movie and and we we're like you know we don't know who the actors are next week and they were like really and I was like well let's at least make it through this week so we you know we're panicking of course behind the scenes and trying to find people and literally with 36 hours before shooting, we, we nailed down Kathy Curtin and Vondi Curtis Hall. And so they showed up. And, and so those scenes with where are around the table. Yeah. Yeah. Those were really the reactions of, of Willa and, and John, as much as their own characters, like, Oh my God, who are these crazy people that we just got stuck in a room with? <laughs> um, yeah. Amazing. Such good reactions Amazing. in that between the two of them. Mm -hmm. That's where you can see really see the chemistry, I think, as well with with, with uh, without the text as well. Mm -hmm. Little shared moments, like okay, yeah, yeah. And that was you know that was kind of the the upside of not having rehearsal for those scenes is that you get these really kind of fresh reactions. And and I was I was listening to an interview I had done with Vondi uh, when we were shooting it, and and he said it was great for the actors too because they didn't know what that you know they knew what was in the page, but those scenes, they didn't know what was going to come out of each other's mouths. So they were all kind of as actors, like really excited and, you know, on the, on the edge of their feet because they didn't know what, you know, from one take to the next, what was going to happen exactly. 
Well, Matt mentioned there about the chemistry between the leads, but also, you know, Vonnie and Catherine there as your characters. Did did you do anything specific to create that? Because it's electric. It's really electric. <laughs> and, they, and they really help the, the, the ground the film in this because you want them to succeed, which makes the ending, no spoilers here, but just, just go, wow, we didn't expect that type thing. Um, because people should watch this film. I'm not going to say any more than that. But, yeah. it, but did you do anything specific in any games, any kind of way you wanted them to look at each other, the way they interacted? Because... It is electric. The chemistry is, there's no question about yeah, it. You yeah. want them, something to happen here. No, I mean, it was literally throwing them all in, you know, Amazing. without having met each other before, pretty much. <laughs> there you go. Good luck. <laughs> I hope this works. <laughs> you know, we had like the night before with Kathy and Vondi together and, and me talking and, and kind of going through their backstory, you know, but it was interesting. Kathy showed up and she had just shot Werewolves Within and, and literally drove from their set to our set without even reading our script, I think. She's what? like, oh, oh these wow. guys, indie <laughs> filmmakers yeah, they need someone. I'll rescue them, you know, and showed up. And then she's like, oh, by the way, I can't do a French accent. I was like, what? What do you mean you can't do it? Everyone can do French. She's like, no, I can do a German accent. I can do. And um, so we kind of tweaked the script and made her a little bit more pan-European in the script, which, you know, it's interesting now looking at like. So yeah, adds yeah. to where is she from? Who is she real? Is she not? Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Mystery. Mm -hmm. Things make, it slightly makes sense. Further on we go yes. as well without yeah. any kind of spoilers. You're like, oh, we kind of okay. made that work. But, um, you know, but it was also just a lot of talk about how, you know, even though this is a film set in the 70s, that part of the story is really about a, a World War II generation, you know, and, and and where they had met. You mentioned that getting cast sort of last minute in some cases. Did that affect your finance in terms of who you needed to cast? Obviously, it's too late now. So I'm thinking, all right, so that means maybe you didn't need cast in place for finance. I don't know. Maybe talk to us a little bit yeah. about that and how that happened and how it affected everything. Right. So, I mean, this kind of goes to how I've done most of my films which is I start with crowdfunding. And the nice thing about crowdfunding is that it's cast agnostic financing. Like you're mm -hmm. not, you don't have to have t Tom Cruise to pre-sell territories or, mm -hmm. you know, things like that, that every foreign sales company will say, um, you know, we didn't have a foreign sales company at all. So, uh, but you know, when you do crowdfunding and, and it's, you know, I, I, if anything, I try to raise, you know, 10 to 15% of the budget, not the whole budget. It's Kickstarter, not kick finisher, you know, or in this yes. case, seed, yeah. seed, seed and spark, not tree and fire, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the people that are giving you money early on, they're your, you know, your extended family and friends and social media people and people interested in the, in the, you know, the project and Watergate or, you know, they're not really there because you got the cast in place. Although I think even when we did the, the crowdfunding, I think we did already have Bruce Campbell and John Cryer, but we didn't tell people about it. So they were still just giving us money. And then you kind of use that base of people because it's you know you get like 350 400 people you know backing you even if it's just for a dollar but you know i always say but you never know when your old bass player buddy from college dave gives mm -hmm. you 40 dollars but posts your pitch video on his facebook page and his brother-in-law who's a 
Silicon Valley investor sees it, he may give you ten thousand dollars. You know, mm-hmm. so you—that's kind of how you raise most of the rest of of your budget. And so, yeah, so people that were giving us money, they knew we had, uh, and that was kind of the nice thing about the voice cast is we had Bruce and John early on, like you know, because it was so easy for them to commit. They're like, yeah, a couple hours of voice work sometime, mm-hmm. sometime maybe never, yeah, in the amorphous future. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll put me down for that. Why? not you know um and but you know those are two of our biggest kind of you know quote unquote names so um so that was enough to get enough money to to start the process and we figured you know worst case scenario we'd shoot for a week stop recast come back you know we didn't realize there'd be a pandemic but you know i was i was really influenced and and kind of mentored a little by robert altman and he always and his one of his uh, his grandson dana is one of my producing partners still so one of the things he told us is you know set a start date tell everyone the train's leaving the station either they're on or they're off and um you know if we hadn't really stuck to that start date we potentially never would have shot the movie at all to this day because you know 11 days later there's no way you could have started a movie even even a week in so you know and so that's kind of been a a great mantra to live by and you know and the nice thing is that it doesn't always work out this way but you know actors are so motivated by um, you know people think by money but it's really more about availability and insecurity like if you you know actors hate to not do anything you know they want to be acting you know and so if they don't have anything booked in the next week or two weeks you know, they're calling their agents. They're freaking out. Like, why don't you have anything for me? And agents who are normally motivated by money, you know, they, (laughs) their other motivation is anxiety that their clients are going to drop them because they didn't get them enough work. So they're like, all right, fine, fine, fine. Take this indie film. We're shooting next week. You know, go leave me alone for, you know, for a while. And that was, you know, and you can get some really amazing people that way. And I've had experience with that on, on, you know, uh, I did this film called Between Us that was an off-Broadway mm-hmm. play adaptation and we were two weeks away from shooting. We Julia Stiles starring, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and so we didn't have our lead actress and um, and I get a call from uh, from Julia Stiles' agent saying, oh, what do you think of Julia Stiles? Because they're agents. <laughs> they all do. And I go, well, she's great, but <laughs> she's great, but I thought that she was booked out in a Broadway, you know, she's been rehearsing a Broadway play for six weeks and she's booked out for the next six months. And he goes, no, 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 the financing for the play fell through two hours ago she's completely distraught we don't know what to do with her she's freaking out the next born movie doesn't shoot for another eight months i was like all right we'll send her the script and 24 hours later she read it she said i'm in and two weeks later she's in my kitchen rehearsing so the trick is to find actors at their most vulnerable emotional moment you swoop in you know (laughs) just keep going around and say are they crying yet right send put the script through the post box now yeah Yeah. (laughs) with the with jumping back to the crowdfunder a little bit just because it'd be fascinating for our listeners they're probably all going yeah but how much did you raise and how did you do it uh, give us a ballpark ish for some of the projects you've done how much you ask for is there any specific tips that work for you i think on this one i think they asked you know the goal was ten thousand, and i think we wound up getting you know closer to 20 okay you know the other trick or, or one trick is i also work with um, a non a nonprofit group uh, in in my case the the film collaborative which is a and i don't know if this works for in England, I'm sure it's completely different, all the rules for everything. But what's nice about it is it basically gives you, you can kind of treat it a little bit like a Patreon mm-hmm. page. So you have your one month campaign, whether it's Kickstarter or Seed and Spark, doesn't really matter. And then inevitably, like in that last day, you get all these people, you know, say, 
you know, oh, I just missed the deadline by five minutes. Sorry, I was going to give you money, but I guess I can't. And you're like, no, no, no. Here's this other link you go to and you can still keep oh, giving shit, me money. Oh, shit, really? That's um, <laughs> the reaction. <laughs> so it's like, son of a bitch, I guess I got to give money now, you know? So that's one trick is to always give people another way to give you money even after the campaign. I don't know. I mean, we did, we did, uh, I'll tell you our the, kind of the most fun perk that we did, which is a little hard to describe on a podcast, but we did a, um, there's a famous photo of Nixon and Elvis in the White House. <laughs> and what we did is for anyone who gave us like $25, um, I, we photoshopped their face into Elvis's face, but we still gave them like the, you know, the sideburns <laughs> and the whole Elvis thing. And so they had this fun, and then we would send it back as this fun picture cool. of them as Elvis shaking hands with Nixon. And, and it was great because then it was the kind of thing that they would then post on Instagram right, and Facebook and Twitter. And, um, and so that's, that's, but that is one trick is to get the people that just gave you money to then keep, you know, spreading the word about it. The engagement. Yeah. And actually say, look what I got. This mm -hmm. is cool. Mm -hmm. Look at me. Ha ha ha. And that, exactly. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Actually very good. You know, it was a free thing for us to do. It didn't cost any money. We didn't have to mail anything, you know, so that was, that was key. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. That's a good tip. Interesting. I thought it would be higher than that. So you, you mentioned there that that would be enough to get you to maybe start filming, but obviously there's other money within that. Well, yeah, exactly. So what it does though, is it gives you enough confidence. So, you know, I think by the end of the campaign, it was something like uh, $27,000, like total with, with the different, you know, places people could give us money. Um, but that's enough to be able to say with a straight face, okay, here's our, we have our start date, you know, it's, March 3rd in our case, um, because everyone knows you can make a movie with an iPhone for $27,000. Doesn't mean you should. It doesn't mean you will. You're going to keep raising money. But, you know, if you're talking to actors and agents and casting directors, you know, um, because that's enough money to hire a lawyer, to hire a casting director, to do those initial things, to get the ball rolling, mm. you know, the kind of the boring things, set up your business, you know, your, the bank account, things like that. But it's enough money to really kind of with confidence say, yep, March 3rd, we're making a movie. Trains leaving the station, you in or you out. And you're going to keep raising money. Now, of course, even by the time we get to, you know, day one, March 3rd, like we had no money in there for post-production at all. You know, that was always assumed that we would keep raising money even after we shot. Like, you know, anyone who says, oh, you got to raise all your budget, including post-production and your extra 10%, like, what are you kidding me? You know, that doesn't, I don't even think that happens on studio films. So <laughs> no, because the reality is, and we, I certainly proved it in this case is that if worst case scenario, you can edit the movie yourself for free mm. on a laptop, like, mm. you, mm -hmm. and guess what I did, you know, <laughs> so you know, that wasn't the original plan, but it worked out that way. And that doesn't frighten you in any way. That doesn't make you go, oh my gosh, what happens if I get to the end and I don't have enough money or not enough money to pay people? Is, is that ever cross your mind or? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely make sure that we have enough to pay people 
sort of mm-hmm. as as we're going. Um, that's right. that's important. I've made other films where we haven't paid people and they get very angry. So, um, so <laughs> uh, you know, or or it's not so much angry. Like if you're if you're straightforward with them and like you know, you may get a great student crew, you know, or great interns, um, but then you don't have a professional crew. So it's it's you know, there's different ways to do it. But the point is, yeah, we always make sure you know there's enough for insurance, there's enough for food, there's enough to pay you know screen actors guild the actors and and part of the problem is that the screen actors guild always asks for an extra bond so you have to basically double your acting budget because Mm -hmm. you need that money extra money which is really annoying anyway so we do that but um but as far as the post-production i mean editing is something i've i've done at least additional editing on all my films and it's something i trained as an editor in film school so i it's the one kind of technical thing where i kind of know how to fake it you know mm-hmm. um so that and and i think over the years i've increasingly edited a greater percentage of my films even though i've had other editors um so this time around it wasn't i wasn't you know scared by that i think yeah fascinating that money can be so hindrance for so so many filmmakers go oh my gosh i haven't got the money i'm not going to make my film and what's amazing about you is you've gone well look i've got this much this is the start date you win or out. Yeah. It's, it's so powerful. It's so th- inspiring. Yeah, because I, I was because it's. I mean, I don't know what it's like in America, but like over, over here, you can people sort of get their first film done, and then that's obviously incredibly hard. But then mm-hmm. it's almost harder to get the next one done. Yeah, no, that's true here too. And yeah, and the, and the next ones. I was like, you know, what is, what 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 was the, the secret to keep doing mm. that? But I yeah, I think I think you've answered that. Part of the secret, yeah, because what happens and we, you know, my nickname or my friends and I, we call it the fear, the fear of making that second film because you 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 know any idiot can make a first film because you don't know any better. You're like woohoo get all my friends and family to give me money and locations and everything and then by the time you finish it you realize all the things you probably did wrong and half those people are angry at you for one reason or another kicked you out of the house Mm -hmm. you know and then you think oh my god how am i going to do this again i don't have any friends or family anymore (laughs) Um, (laughs) so that's where going to film festivals really helps because that's the one time you get to meet new friends and family you know Mm. um and so you need to reacquire a social network or family network or girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever (laughs) you happen to need um and so festivals is great for that. Um, but also I think, you know, then you realize, oh, wait a minute, even though my bass player friend Dave isn't going to give me, you know, a hundred bucks again, maybe he gives me five bucks, but his brother-in-law, you know, can give me money. And and you have to th- think creatively about, well, maybe I do have a bigger network of people than I thought I did before. But but also I think a lot of people get caught up, myself included. I mean, it took me seven years between my first film and my second film, or maybe longer, um, because I thought I was going to make a much bigger sophomore film with a bigger budget. And then that right. one fell through five days before shooting. And then three years later, we were going to do it again. And then 9-11 happened. And so... And that, to this day, that film never got made. And meanwhile, it, it was actually Mark Forster, the director, uh, who is the Slam Dance alum. I ran into him and he's like, and this is in, you know, uh, yeah, 2000, 2001. He's like, you know what? You know, these Danish filmmakers are doing these dogma films on mini DV. Like, we should be doing that too. And, um, you know, don't let the money 
get in the way of just making the next film. And, and so, mm-hmm. and I really took that to heart and then I made a, a, you know, $40,000 real estate musical, you know, as yes. my next film. Did we, did we read this right? That then you, you, you convinced the Oscars to, to, to bring back a category. a category. Well, is this right? We tried. Yeah, it's close. So what happened was we'd made this real estate musical called Open House and it had, you know, it had uh, Anthony Rapp in it. Yeah. From Rent and Sally Kellerman, who is an Oscar nominee for MASH and some really amazing people. That's the trick because if you make a musical actor, you can get amazing actors. And that was literally one of the reasons we made a musical is just to mm. get a higher level cast. Anyway, so we made this thing. It was fun. It goes to festivals. Uh, act, you know, audiences liked it. Critics liked it. But distributors had wanted nothing to do with it. So like all good Hollywood stories, this one starts with me coming out of the proctologist's office one day. And uh, and I, I get a call <laughs> from my friend Ariana, who at the time was the head of acquisitions at Merrimax Films. And this is 2004. So that was a really big deal. And she says, Dan, have you heard about this Oscar category called Best Original Musical? And I was like, Best Original Musical? That's crazy talk. I never heard of such a thing. She goes, no, no, no. It's a real category that the Academy has. They've just never activated it. So what do you mean activated? And she says, well, the rules say that in any given year, if there are five eligible um, musicals, then they activate the category and three of them get nominated and one of them wins. I'm thinking, wow, you know, even if you just get an Oscar nomination, some distributor is going to want to pick you up and say, you know, Oscar nominated film. I was like, and that's a 60% chance of getting an Oscar nomination. That's pretty good. Yeah, take those odds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why, why hasn't this ever happened before? And she says, ah, because the, the eligibility rules are very strict. So to be considered as an original musical, it can't be based on a stage play. So uh, it can't have uh-huh. unoriginal music. It has to have all original music by the same consistent songwriting team. And it needs at least five songs. And the songs have to tell the story of the movie. They can't just be mood music in the background. Mm-hmm. So... That's why there had never been a year with five films. So the reason she was calling me is Merrimax thought they had two films that were going to be eligible and they needed a couple patsies like me that weren't going to win <laughs> or, or get nominated. And I was like, sure, I'll be Harvey's patsy. What could go wrong with that? You know? <laughs> As we found out. Um, so together we started like trying to find other films uh, that were eligible. And I knew uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone a little bit through Slamdance and they had mm. just done Team America World Police, which was their puppet film for Paramount, but it had six yeah. songs. So that was eligible. And they were like, yeah, man, let's let's do this. We'll take an Oscar. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, and then Neil Young, who I'd actually worked with a little bit before, he had directed a film called Greendale, which was kind of tied to an album release, but technically he shot the film before the album came out. So that made it eligible. So he submitted... Um, uh, Disney had a huge had a, one of their last big animated hand drawn animated films um, called Home on the Range, which was a bit of a flop for them. But the music was by Alan Menken, who already had eight Oscars for Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and all that. And he's like, "Oh, I've got room on my mantle for one more Oscar." Here you go. <laughs> you know, so, right, so he submitted. Um, and then, meanwhile, though, the two Merrimax films that they thought were going to be eligible turned out were not eligible for all these various arcane reasons, and so they. So they dropped out. So now we need one more. So I thought, well, I have to shoot another film, obviously. Um, So and this is August of 2004. The deadline is December 1st at 5 p.m. And I was like, well, I, I, you know, it's it's not easy to shoot a new film. But uh, and I was still on the festival circuit with original score. Exactly. So I was going I was 
two weeks later, I was going to the Oldenburg Film Festival, which is a great festival in northern Germany. And I was going with one of my actors and my producing partner was going and I'm friends with the guy who runs a festival and he's a bit of a producer. So we said, why don't we just shoot something there? I'll just borrow my friend's DVX 100 mini DV <laughs> camera and a Sennheiser mic. We came up with an improvisable storyline. Um, but we wrote in those two weeks, we wrote like a dozen songs, you know, and it was a team of four of us doing it. And then the Germans just assigned us a cast and told them all they were going to win an Oscar. And we're like, all right, cool. And they were some pretty big name actors in Germany and big rock stars too over there. And, right. uh, but, um, you know, but the trick was we, we couldn't make it too good because then it would take votes away from our first film, Open House. So we, we needed our own Patsy. So, you know, we, we had nine days to make a bad German musical. So it was like a real life version of the producers. Um, I was just about to say that. Yep. Oh, good. Exactly. Exactly. Like. And so like our lead actress, who was a great actress in Germany, she, she meets us at the airport. She's like, oh, we are all so excited to win the Oscar. Uh, but uh, there are five problems. And I go, what could they be? And she goes, well, I can't sing and I can't improvise. And I said, you're perfect. You know? um, <laughs> so, oh, please turn this into a film. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. Good. So we had all kinds of crazy adventures wow. and ran into the biggest pimp in Germany and got, you know, <laughs> we of course we did, you know, and, and there was a giant triathlon going on in, in Hamburg. And anyway, we had a lot of fun adventures and we shot the thing and um, came back to LA, slapped together a cut of it. And, and at 4.55 PM, we go to the Academy building in, in, in Beverly Hills and their, their office is on the seventh floor and the elevator is not working. And <gasps> so we, we run up the stairs, we run up the stairs, we run up the stairs and we finally get there and we're like, ah, here you go. Here's your DVD or VHS or whatever it was at the time. And they're like, oh, crap, you guys, you know, because we'd been telling them for months and asking them, like, is this really in the rules? Can we really do this? Yeah. They, you know, and they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're like, what kind of idiot goes to Germany to make a bad German musical? And I was like, well, this idiot right here. You know? <laughs> and, um, so they're like, oh, shit. Now we got to take it to the Board of Governors. So the Board of Governors meets the next, you know, three days later. And it's, you know, Tom Hanks and the studio heads. And they all talk like this because that's how they talk in L.A. And, um, <laughs> and they're like, Oscar, the best original musical. That's crazy talk. We've never heard of such a thing. And, and you know, the guys the guys on the music branch, the governors, they were like, oops, yeah, no, that's our category. We just didn't think anyone would do it. And they never, you know, you know, they don't want to like expand the four hour long broadcast. So they're like, we, we, we can't add more categories. That's crazy. Who are we going to give this thing to when all said and done? Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Those guys showed up in dresses, hopped up on acid the last time they were nominated. They're like, they're banned for life. Neil Young, they didn't like Neil Young for some reason. I think because he, last time he was nominated, he didn't show up for dress rehearsal. They're like, no, that guy's a, rock and roller we don't want him um alan menken he's got too many oscars already he's got eight he doesn't need any more his mantelpiece is full trust me and then this mervish character they're like well his two films the combined budget did not up to the cost of an oscar gift basket so we're not gonna <laughs> and he just told us one of his films was bad so they canceled the category <gasps> Oh, no. And we're like, oh my God, how can you do that? Because they're such sticklers for the rules. Everybody yeah. knows that. And you followed the rules. And we followed the rules, absolutely. And German musical, for God's exactly. sake. Exactly. <laughs> and they were, you know, and they're like, well, what are you going to do about a kid? And I was like, well, I'm going to take umbrage because really, what mm -hmm. else can you take? And so yeah, we got yeah. a lot of press. So we got in Variety, Hollywood Reporter, LA Times, Reuters picked up the story, ran all over the world. And eventually, based on the press that we got from this, we wound up getting distribution from a, a small distributor for open house uh, but then like two months later they got bought out by the Weinstein company Miramax had just turned into the Weinstein company what? and they put out the DVD on the back of the box that says from the film that changed the rules of the Academy Awards you know? and if you think about it I mean the goal wasn't to get an Oscar the goal was to get distribution and mm -hmm. so we did 
Um, and then meanwhile, you know, my actor I was working with, he recut the German film. It turned out to be a pretty decent film. It played festivals. It got a small distribution deal too. So, Oh, that's a happy ending. Yeah. Now the one kind of, uh, postscript to this is that the next year they literally rewrote the rules. They added what I call the Mervish clause that says, well, we have the right to activate this category if we so choose to activate the category, but otherwise it's basically the same rules. It's been back in the books for the last 16 or 20 years almost, and it has still never been activated. There's still never been a year when there's been enough films. And and I've, I've told this story over the years and uh, to film students a lot. And so there have been groups of film students. I was like, you know, get you, you know, you guys make a film, get your friends at another film school. And so there have been these periodic times where people have tried to kind of get enough films, but, um, but it hasn't happened yet. Oh, there it is. What a story. Listeners. Listeners, there we go. You know what your Go out is now, yeah. and make your musicals. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it only has to be 41 minutes long, too, because that's the definition of a feature for... Um, yes. For Oscars, yeah. So technically, you could make a feature, cut it in half, pretend it's two, and then go, now we've got two, now we need three. Oh, well, the sequel, The yeah. sequel, there we go. This is, a, I love that story. I mean, to even think to do that in the first place <laughs> and to get stuff going like you do is, you know, it's it's true indie filmmaking. It's true, right, I'm going to go out there and make stuff happen. You said the gap between your first and second, you know, and, and that whole <laughs> fight. Have you ever felt like the outsider? Have you ever felt like, why, why can't, Oscar pay attention why can't these things pay attention has that ever bothered you has that ever been a problem for you <laughs> well you know I, I live a block and a half south of the Sony lot one of the you know which is the, mm. which is the old MGM lot in, in Culver City and um, you know the key thing there is that uh, I'm south of them which means technically they're in my shadow um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that that's the only way I can wake up mm. in the mornings if I really, you know, put it in that perspective. Uh, yeah, no, Hollywood doesn't come knocking and, and, um, if they knocked, I would answer, trust me, but, uh, <laughs> they don't. but the nice thing about, um, you know, making indie films as opposed to, you know, everybody wants to be a showrunner on a TV series now on a Netflix or Amazon or whatever. That's the hot thing is these, you know, eight episode limited series things. Um, but the, but for that, you really need like an agent and, you know, and, you know, fancy pants actors and all these attachments to do it. And, and you may still never get it. You could be pitching for years and it may still never happen. The nice thing about indie film is you can green light yourself. You can say, mm -hmm. you know what? You know, we may wind up shooting on an iPhone or we may shoot it on a 35 millimeter or anything in between. But next March 3rd, we're making a movie. You know, and and there, you know, because there's so many great festivals around the world, uh, you know, even during the pandemic, when some were virtual or hybrid or things like that, there were there was places to show your movie. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, you may not get into, you know, Sundance, but there's plenty of really great festivals out there and see the world. And, you know, and if you think about it, you know you know, if you think of us as artists and maybe small A, not big A, you know, the, the, that's the point is to make something and show it to people. That's it. The goal isn't to make money. The goal isn't to, or I mean, for some people it is obviously, but you know, you need to make some sort of a living, but you know, the goal is to make some sort of art or something or a movie, you know, and, and movies only exist, you know, they're like the tree in the forest. If you, if nobody sees them, do they really exist? So, you know, but a festival audience is usually bigger than a real theatrical release audience mm. for, for indie films anyway. So I think that's why I love going to festivals. That's incredible. Is there a tip? do you think because you you get into a lot of festivals with your films 18 and a half is 21 so far it's probably more yeah, that you yeah, haven't yeah. even mentioned um, right. in, in the, sort of the, the write up of it at the moment but 
is there a tips to getting to festivals for you? Obviously, you're the, the co-founder of Slam Dance as well. And it'd be interesting to your connections there. Not that they help, but you know what works, right? When you're looking at submissions, maybe you could give us a little insight into that and what works for you with your films. Yeah, for me, it's volume, volume, volume. Um, I right. submit to a lot of festivals. So, right. so that costs a lot, though, doesn't it? It does. And there's a whole chapter in my book, How Not to Go Broke submitting to film festivals. So the, the and the, tr- the the short version of that is is really to just contact the f- festivals early and and try to just you know don't just submit blindly but send them an email track down who the programming person is for whatever your category short or feature or doc and say and especially now with a pandemic it's like it's a le- perfectly legit question to ask oh are you, when are your dates and are you guys live? Are you hybrid? What's your, what's your plan this year? Um, and then say, Hey, here's my film. Not don't send them a link to the film, but just give them a one line description of it, you know, and, and, and they all love premieres. So say, Oh, you know, were you interested in, in this film and premiering it? And, you know, is this the kind of film that you guys are considering? And they'll either get back, you know, one of four or five ways, you know, one, they may say, get back to you right away and say, Oh, that sounds great. Send me a link. Well, great. Okay. That's, they didn't mention the fee. You didn't mention the fee. There is no fee, you know, it's a huge there. Um, so, um, so that happens sometimes, or they may say that sounds great. Here's a link to our film freeway page and here's a fee waiver code or a discount code. Sometimes it's like, okay, great. That's, that's a waiver or even just a discount. Um, or they may say, that's great. Submit, pay full fee, but at least now they know who you are. Now you've made a little bit of a personal connection with them. Like they, you know, they can connect the name with the title of the film and you're not just sending it into the void. And then the fourth way they can get back to you is say, is by not replying at all. And that tells you something that tells you that if you then do submit, you really are submitting into a void. So probably don't submit, you know? Um, So that's one way to kind of winnow down which ones to submit to. And then the other thing is to talk to other filmmakers that have kind of similar films in your length and style and genre um, that have been on the festival circuit in the last year or two. And where did they go? I mean, either contact them directly or go to their own websites and see, Oh, where have they been? You know, and really kind of track, track that down. And you, and, and then, you know, and then once you get into a festival, then again, talk to the alumni and say, well, how was it? Was it worth going? Do they fly you there? Do they put you up? You know, uh, are there awards? You know, is there press? You know, ask all those questions because a lot of festivals are great and a lot of, but people don't know it. And a lot of festivals are lousy, but people think they're great, you know? Um, but also people can have different opinions too. Like you may talk to one filmmaker and they may have a fantastic experience at one festival and talk to another filmmaker who went the same year. And just because they had a cold or broke up with their girlfriend that day, you know, they may have had a miserable time. So you kind of have to talk to a few and really kind of feel if it's right for you, you know. Such great advice. Thank you for that. And I suppose just finally your tips on directing actors, because you seem like a a brilliant guy uh, to just be with and hang out with genuinely. But in terms of on set, working with, you know, the talent you had on set was incredible anyway. But what's, what do you like to do, you know, in terms of your directing uh, with them and, and trying to get the performances you need? What what kind of things, any tips, tricks there that work for you? Well, the, and this, again, I learned this from Robert Altman. Um, you know, he mics everybody individually, puts a lavalier mic on everyone. You know, you also have a boom, but there's always a lavalier mic and they're all going to individual discrete channels um, in the mixer. And then that allows you to encourage them to do overlapping dialogue, um, which they don't always, 
even when they're individually mic'd on TV shows or something, they still are told, you know, don't overlap dialogue. The sound editor and the editors can't deal with that. And I'm like, well, I'm the editor. I'll figure it out, you know? Mm -hmm. So doing that uh, really frees up the actors to really, you know, perform and and give these kind of lived in performances that kind of feel improvised, even though they're really on script, you know? Um, And I think that's important. And just to let them, you know, just, don't over direct. I think that's the one thing I've learned over the years is like, just kind of let them do their thing. Like you cast good people and smart people, let them be good and smart and figure things out for themselves a lot of times. You know, so that's a big part of it. I think the other interesting trick, and this goes back to shooting these wonners, is that even if you don't have a lot of rehearsal time, but you're starting to work with actors and you know, oh, this person just showed up 36 hours ago. They're clearly aren't going to have their monologue memorized. Like, you know, that was, you know, that was a big issue. Like, oh my gosh, Kathy just showed up. And, and I was like, it's okay. Don't worry about it because your scenes, I'm going to shoot in kind of a jump cut style. So you don't have to have it memorized all the way. Whereas I knew that the other scenes with Willa and John, um, you know, because you know, they had a little bit more time, they could sustain a five minute scene or a three minute scene, you know, in a wonner. And so part of it is knowing, okay, who do I have to work with in each given scene? And what's that combination of actors? And how is that going to inform my edit, my directing, and then therefore my editing style? And that's actually, I think, why having an editing background is really good for directing, because then it, it helps you kind of figure out how you're going to shoot a scene and then you're not wasting time. Like, yeah, this one's a wonner, this scene's a wonner, but this one isn't. Or this scene's a wonner, but mm-hmm. eh, we should still probably shoot a little bit of coverage just in case, you know? Because if you think about it, and I got this advice from an advisor when I was in film school, he was like, you know, because second year at USC, you have to pick like a focus or a concentration, not just directing. And uh, and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, cinematography, because that's how I talked back then. And, uh, <laughs> and and I go, you know, because that's like the macho, whatever, That's the th- that's the that was the hot thing to do. And, and he, this guy was, cinematographer he goes and then he says well what do you eventually want to do i said directing i want to be a director and uh, he said well then you should know editing that's really what you should do because if you think about it 95 percent of the people on set are there to get the image onto the camera whatever the camera is so the actors hair makeup wardrobe lights camera gaffers grips um but Who's there from the editing department? It's almost never the editor. So it's really only the director and maybe the script supervisor. You know, if you have a decent, you know, who are there like reminding you, oh, by the way, we should get this pickup shot or this insert shot or this or that. And thinking about how you're going to cut the the scene. So that's why sort of knowing a little, uh, you know, having some savvy in editing and uh, and then applying that to, okay, how am I going to direct the scene? You know, because we shot this with one camera, um, you know, that was intentional and, um, yeah, that's what we did. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. 18 and a half is uh, available in festivals coming up now. It'll be available in the UK, July the 11th, UK and Ireland. But for now, it is available in festivals. Do check it out. Link to that will be in the show notes because it is on your website. Is that right? Yeah. And then we ha- we have a new website for the film itself. So it's 18 and then spelled out and uh, half dot com. com. Yeah, that's it. Great. Yeah. I'll- 
put links to that in the show notes so please do go have a look please check this film out it's beautiful and now you've heard Dan speak you understand how he made it and you'll, <laughs> you'll love it even more and do buy his book as well link to that will be in the show notes it's fantastic and Dan where can people find you on the socials because you're active on there as well yeah yeah at Dan Mervish or or some of them are at D Mervish I can't tell so Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and um, if I can figure out how to get my TikTok working again. Maybe even TikTok. But. <laughs> but you're really active on the socials. It seems like you never sleep. Whenever I go on, you're sort of on there, sort of, you know, 18 and a half, 18 and a half. It's amazing. The amount of work you, you put into the, into the socials as well. It shows how important it is. Yeah, it, it really is because, you know, every person that you annoy today could be someone that gives you money on the next film you know, in five years, um, you know, yeah. or, you know, on Twitter, I've, I've spent the last 10 years accumulating friends that are film critics. You know, they don't, they haven't figured that out, but that's what I've been doing, you know, that's a great tip. And yep. yeah, it, but it's, it's a, it's a long game. You've got to really, you know, start while you're in film school, start making friends with all your friends that are going to be doctors and lawyers and accountants. Um, because in 10 years, they're going to be your investors. Love that. What a great way to end. Adam Mervish, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an absolute joy to listen to you. Well, thank thanks. you. It really has. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dan. So you can go out there and make your indie film. You can do it just as Dan has done. Be inspired and go out there and do it. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send, send the elevator back down. down. We will see you all next Tuesday. As always, Dan Mervish, thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Matt. Bye, Tori. Bye. Bye.